The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Monday, April 23rd, 2018, was a surprisingly warm day in Toronto, Ontario, causing residents to be out in droves, ditching their winter coats, eager to enjoy the sunshine. Among those taking advantage of the warmer weather was 67-year-old Catherine Riddell, headed to the library off of Young Street, when a van suddenly struck her from behind. The vehicle had hit Catherine with such force it sent her body flying in the air before crashing through a transit shelter. The strange thing was, Catherine hadn't been hit crossing the street. She'd been walking on the sidewalk. It would be two whole weeks before she'd learn the horrific details of the accident. An accident that hadn't actually been an accident at all. Join me now as we take a look into a case that shocked not only the people of Toronto, but all of Canada in an act of violence that spanned over seven minutes. You'll hear how investigators and a community search for answers, leaving everyone with the lingering question, why? Before we get to what happened to Catherine Riddell, we need to take you back a bit further, back to where this tragic story begins with a man we'll be referring to as John Doe. As a child, John Doe's parents said he dreamt of becoming a pilot one day, a dream they believed was unlikely, because although John had a talent with numbers, he struggled in many other ways. Eventually diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, now part of a broader category called autism spectrum disorder, John had trouble interacting and connecting with other kids at school from the start, his noticeable physical tics only making things worse by drawing even more attention to a boy already uncomfortable making eye contact with people. At the high school he attended in Thornhill, kids didn't ease up on John. They made fun of him and laughed at him in the halls, sometimes encouraging him to approach girls, knowing full well he'd be rejected and ridiculed. In the end, there seemed only three places John felt safest to come out of his shell, at home, in the learning strategy classes he attended, and in an online Halo gaming community. Specifically in the gaming community, John could be who he wanted and do what he wanted. Most of all, he wasn't alone. But in spite of the challenges John experienced at school, he managed to graduate successfully and decided to go to college, enrolling in computer programming, a program he did so well at that within a few years, he transferred to an even more challenging software development program. Oddly enough, however, just a semester before graduating, John left home and enlisted in the Canadian Armed Forces, 
and although he managed to pass all the tests and interviews to get in, it was hardly an environment he thrived in. From day one, John came across to the rest of the recruits as shine withdrawn, but what frustrated them most was it didn't appear he could take an order. Every day it seemed as though John would get an instruction wrong, with his entire barrack paying the price with extra push-ups. And after only 16 days in, John requested to be discharged. His section leader would later state, it was in the back of our minds that giving this guy a firearm probably wouldn't go well. It wasn't that John appeared violent or unstable, that putting a gun in his hand seemed like a bad idea at the time. Instead, it was because they just didn't think he was capable of learning how to use it properly. After quitting the army, John headed back to school, where he was finally able to complete his studies, earning a bachelor's in software development by April 2018. But by the end of his time at school, as John desperately applied for jobs, something seemed off about him. In an online business app called Slack, John went on rants about his program, criticizing his teachers, later getting into an argument with a classmate, yelling F.U. at him before storming out. When John finally did graduate, he posted a final statement on Slack that read, Finally finished college, F you all, and good riddance. Although John was now finished school and had a job lined up, he had zero intentions of ever starting it, because John had other plans. On April 23rd, at 1 in the afternoon, John arrived at a rider rental office in Woodbridge to pick up a truck he'd reserved earlier that month. But instead of giving him the truck he requested, he was given a panel van instead. Not exactly what he was expecting, but it would have to do. That particular Monday afternoon was proving to be a perfect day for driving. The sun was shining, with very few clouds in the sky. Most importantly, traffic was flowing smoothly. And although John had expected a larger vehicle, the panel van was still a decent size and handled well larger than a car but fairly easy to maneuver. From Rider Rental on Creditstone Road in Woodbridge, John turned onto Highway 7 and drove east toward Toronto, taking the ramp onto Young Street, a street that on any given day is bustling with pedestrians, shopping or commuting to work, friends meeting up at bars and local restaurants. However, on that particular day, because of the warmer weather, Young Street was busier than usual. John had now arrived at the major intersection of Young and Finch Avenue West and decided it was time to put his horrific plan into motion. Steering the van onto the sidewalk, John floored the accelerator, essentially turning the panel van into a weapon of destruction. Mounting the sidewalk, John aimed the van directly at a cluster of seven people standing in front of a Korean barbecue restaurant. Killed instantly was Jihun Jem, a 22-year-old South Korean student studying at Seneca College, as well as 22-year-old Sohee Chung, a student at the University of Toronto. But the collision into the group of people didn't slow John down. Instead, he continued barreling down the sidewalk, aiming the van at pedestrians, including 83-year-old Geraldine Brady and 45-year-old Kulmin Gang, both pronounced dead at the scene. 
After striking 94-year-old Mary Elizabeth Forsyth from behind, John then hit and ran over 85-year-old Munir Najjar, flinging him two meters into the air before landing on his head, causing catastrophic injuries. Mary would die later in hospital. Continuing to accelerate, John struck six more pedestrians, killing 30-year-old financial analyst Anna Marie D'Amico and Butis Renuka Amarasingh, a 45-year-old nutritionist. As John kept driving, one person attempted to run alongside the van and reach inside the driver's side window, but John sped up. A police officer and another civilian also managed to get close enough to reach for the van's door handle, but it was locked and John kept going. 33-year-old account executive Andrea Braden had been holding a drink when she was hit from behind, along with two other people, 80-year-old retiree Dorothy Sewell and 62-year-old nurse Amarsh Tesfamariam. Andrea and Dorothy died. When Andrea was hit, her drink splashed all over the van's windshield, making it impossible for John to see where he was going. With zero visibility, he was forced to stop the van seven minutes after his deadly attack began. At 1.27, John reached for his phone and posted a public message on Facebook. Private Doe wishing to speak to Sergeant 4chan, please. Thane's cell rebellion has already begun. We will overthrow all the Chads and Stacys. All hail the Supreme Gentleman, Elliot Roger. When John emerged from the mangled vehicle, Constable Ken Lamb was waiting for him, pointing a gun at him, ordering him to get down. Instead, John remained standing and made a motion as if he was pulling a gun from his pocket, yelling back at the constable to shoot him. I've got a gun. Kill me now, John yelled. Kill me now. Shoot me. But John wasn't holding a gun. He was holding his wallet attempting a tactic commonly referred to as suicide by cop, but Lamb kept his cool and lowered his gun. Turning off his siren and taking out his baton, Constable Lamb cautiously approached John, repeating his command for him to get down on the ground. Eventually, John complied, a dramatic showdown that thankfully ended peacefully, thanks to the de-escalation tactics used by the brave officer that day. In seven minutes, John had killed 10 innocent people and injured 16, some catastrophically. Amarish Tesfamariam would later die from her injuries. With John now in custody, Toronto police had a new task at hand to find out the answer to the big question everyone would be asking for the next two years. Why? What had been the motivation behind the attack? Why had John decided to plow down dozens of innocent people that day? People he'd never met before in his life. But before they could get to that question, they first needed to get John to Toronto Police's 32 division for booking. First of all, you don't have to agree with it, but do you understand why you're here? I understand. Okay. I gotta go through a questionnaire. Simple questionnaire we do for everybody. Yes or no answers, okay? But it's important that you speak so that the microphones can pick you up. Do you understand? Yes. 
there was almost a disturbing disconnect between the formal tone of the entire booking procedure and the acts of vicious savagery that had brought John to this moment in time. But it was during the booking, John would go on to make a stunning admission about himself. Are you suffering from any recent injuries? No. Are you suffering from any illnesses? Yes, I'm a murdering piece of shit. Okay, other than that, uh, do you have any other illnesses that you've been diagnosed with? No. No? Other than a brief pause, none of them registered even mild surprise at John's admission and continued the procedure with polite formality. What's going to happen is the officers will take you upstairs where an investigator uh, will lead the case. Um, and at that time, you will have access to a lawyer if you change your mind. Do you understand that, sir? Yes. Okay, gentlemen, he's all yours. As John was led upstairs to be interrogated, he didn't appear nervous or apprehensive. Instead, he was calm, his demeanor inscrutable. There was no question John had committed the crimes he was charged with. The purpose of the interview was to find out why he'd done it and to determine to what extent he was aware of the severity of what he'd done. What followed was nearly a three-hour interview where police began to believe they were learning the answers to those questions. Detective Rob Thomas of the Toronto Police Sex Crimes Unit was one of Toronto's most experienced senior police investigators. The fact that he'd been assigned to interrogate John was evidence of how serious Toronto police were about understanding the true nature of John's crimes. Although John had a constitutional right not to speak with police, it was Detective Thomas's job to get him to open up, even though he wasn't obligated to. Uh, my understanding is at some point, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a police officer in a suit came down and he updated you with respect to the charges that were going to be laid. Yes. Okay. And did, do you remember what he said to you? Yes. So originally the charges were nine counts of first-degree murder. Right. Then later on it got updated to 10 counts of first-degree murder plus uh, 15 counts of attempted murder. Exactly. Yes. That's my understanding. Do you understand what first-degree murder is? It's a premediated murder and completely intentional and considered to be what's known as in cold blood. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a fairly, uh, a fairly precise way of uh, describing it. What we, we call it premeditated. It means premeditated. You understand what premeditated means? Yes, it means it would mean that someone planned for that murder in advance. Right, planning and deliberation. In other words, you, you, um, if somebody committed first degree murder, they would have uh, took the time out to think about what they were going to do, uh, sit down and. Deliberate over the, the plan. So, in other words, they were going to sit down and go over the details of the plan, figure out what it is they were going to do, how they were going to execute the plan, and so on and so forth to commit a murder. Plan and deliberate. That's what it means. So, there's a lot of thought and energy that goes into planning to kill somebody. That's, that's what first degree murder is. Okay. At first, Detective Thomas struggled to get John to share anything about his personal life or family. But after about an hour in, Detective Thomas discovered a soft spot, video games. Right, you never play Call of Duty. Unfortunately, that game isn't realistic. The scenarios aren't realistic, but like the weapons they use are realistic, aren't they? And, uh, and the camel and the, and the uniforms and stuff. Unfortunately, uh, um, the, the logistics of how the uh, weapons are fired right. uh, are not uh, realistic in real life. For oh. example, uh, there's a lot of recoil when firing 
a uh, assault rifle. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I imagine that you're not getting much recoil on your computer. After sharing about his love for video games, John became a lot more talkative, and it appeared the detective's patient and rapport-building technique was working like a charm. Seeing an opening, the detective began probing deeper, getting John to talk specifically about his frustrations with women and his inability to attract a partner. In terms of your feelings towards women in general, how would you describe that? I would say that sometimes I am a bit upset that they choose to uh, date uh, obnoxious men instead of uh, uh, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah. So my understanding is um, you, you have some problems with women who date obnoxious men. Right? Yes. And these guys, I'm thinking you're, you're talking about the fellows who are loud, uh, arrogant, generally outgoing and popular with girls. Yes. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Okay. And you have a problem with the women that date these fellows? Yes. Why is it that you have a problem with, with the women? Because I feel that uh, it's illogical to be... Uh, dating such men when they could be dating a gentleman instead. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Two detectives, it appeared as though John was beginning to scratch the surface on what had been the motivation behind the deadly van attack. John mentioned his involvement with 4chan. Okay, so describe 4chan to me. What is, what, what, what is 4chan specifically? It's an image board uh, where uh, people... Uh, can anonymously make any post they want. Mm -hmm. So when did you first start going on the 4chan? Since uh, 2014. What's the general topic within these message boards? Well, on R9K, it's they uh, call us uh, space robots. Okay. Uh, the topic is usually uh, frustrations at an inability to lose one's virginity, specifically for young males. Okay. Like some of the other men in these chat groups, John considered himself an incel, an involuntary celibate. Involuntarily yes. celibate. What does that mean? That means an celibacy means uh, uh, someone who never before has a sexual intercourse. Right. Uh, involuntary celibacy means this wasn't your choice. I you see. essentially are uh, have been thrown into true forced loneliness, and you're unable to lose your virginity. Right. This is especially. Uh, painful for uh, young males. So when, what would it be, what would it typically focus around or what would the, what would the, tip, the typical conversations contain? Uh, red pill truths about uh, why uh, women uh, choose to date uh, obnoxious men. Date the chads. Yeah. The chads of this world. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically the Stacy's going for the chads. Exactly. The Stacy's are the, you know, the, you know, the, the, the dizzy dumb, girls dating the, the goofy, you know, jocks. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So you call them Stacy's and Chad's. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard that term before. In the incel worldview, Stacy's are popular, sexually desirable young women who reject betas, nerdy, sexually awkward men like John. According to incel ideology, the kind of men Stacy's prefer are Chad's, stereotypical alpha males, attractive, successful jocks, muscular, cocky and very popular with women. John claimed he'd been inspired by Elliot Roger, the so-called saint of the incels, who on May 23, 2014, murdered six people at a college in California before turning the gun on himself. Two of his victims were women, 
four were non-white men. Before the attack, Roger had written a 141-page manifesto filled with anger, sexual pining, self-pity and hatred for Stacy's, Chad's and interracial couples, calling May 23rd a day of retribution against the women and unworthy men of color who'd sinned against him. And here was John Doe on April 23rd, driving down a sidewalk, running over dozens of innocent people, claiming a rebellion of his own. So explain to me this movement. What's this movement about? It's basically a movement of angry uh, incels such as myself who are unable to get laid. Therefore, we want to overthrow the uh, Chads, mm -hmm. which would uh, force the Stacys to be forced to uh, reproduce with the incels. Right, right. Okay. And when you say incels... Involuntary uh, celib celibate. Celibate. So that's just a, a, sh a short for form for fellas who... Can't uh, lead. Can't, can't have sex. Right. Okay. And uh, what happened in the uh, Elliot Rogers uh, uprising? What did he do? I know he used a uh, gun as well as a, a vehicle to um, convert the life status of certain individuals to a uh, death status. Right. Um, only to uh, carry the message that um, incels uh, can't be oppressed. Right, right. So it was, uh, uh, it was an act of rebellion. Yes. And, and it was um, out of frustration and anger. You could call it an incel rebellion. Incel rebellion, exactly, right, yeah, okay. And um, how many lives were converted from living to dead? Six. Six in total, okay. And he used a vehicle in that as yes. well? Yes. As part of the process of converting these lives? Yes. And uh, was anything else? Did he do anything else? I know he used a uh, a knife as right. for his first three murders. For his first three murders, okay, all right. Eventually, John began describing the thoughts he claimed were going through his mind as he drove his van toward Young and Finch. Now, what are you thinking while you're in the van? Uh, I'm thinking that this is it. This is the day of retribution. Okay. And uh, anything else in your mind? Just that. That's, that. that's the only thing that's in my mind. It's just burning in my mind. Burning in your mind. Yeah. At the end of the interview, Detective Thomas repeated to John the murderous toll of his van attack and asked how he felt. I'm going to ask you this because it's important. Ten people died here today. Fifteen people were seriously injured. I think it's important to ask how you feel about that. I feel like uh, I accomplished my mission. You feel like you accomplished your mission? Yes. Okay. If the families of those people who were murdered and who were injured were in this room right now, what would you say to them? I honestly don't know what I would say. Would you apologize? I honestly don't know. As John was being interrogated, the mile-long crime scene was being cordoned off, and injured survivors were rushed to various hospitals across the city. Those killed in the attack were covered with orange tarps. During his police interrogation, John explained how the day unfolded. I'm uh, given a ride to uh, the Starbucks location near Highway 7 and Weston. Okay. And then from that point, I uh, walk to the uh, rider uh, rental location, and from there I uh, pick up my van. John walked about two and a half miles to the rider rental, presented a valid driver's license, as well as a credit card. 
Before leaving, John asked an employee to show him how to put the van into drive. By the time John had reached Young and Finch Avenue West, he claimed he wasn't completely sure where to start his attack. Why do you choose Young and Finch? I, I didn't choose Young and Finch in particular. I was driving down Young because I knew it would be a busy area. And then as soon as I saw there were uh, pedestrians, mm -hmm. I just decided to uh, go for it. Okay. During the investigation, police executed search warrants on John Doe's home, where he lived with his parents, seizing 29 electronic devices, including several hard drives, memory sticks, laptops, iPads, cell phones, cameras, and a router from the basement. All items were then forensically analyzed by the Technological Crimes Unit of the Toronto Police Service. A year later, however, investigators were still unable to access John's MacBook laptop, as well as two smartphones he'd added layers of encryption to. He also refused to give up the passwords. John's trial began in November 2020, with John's videotaped interview playing a crucial role. Because of the widespread outrage and intense media coverage, concerns were raised about whether John would receive a fair trial before an impartial jury. Instead, John would be tried by a judge in Toronto. During the trial, John admitted to planning and carrying out the attack. However, he claimed to psychologists he'd exaggerated the extent of his involvement with online incels, stating most of what he said in his interrogation was a ruse to garner notoriety. The defense team made John's Asperger's syndrome diagnosis central to the case, arguing he should be found not criminally responsible because of the disorder and that he didn't have the ability to feel empathy towards his victims, the legal equivalent of making an insanity defense. But the prosecution argued that John was a mass killer who had a perfectly good understanding of the difference between right and wrong who just happened to have autism. Autism advocacy groups across Canada warned that linking John's crime to autism spectrum disorder was dangerous and could further stigmatize people with the disorder, asserting that autism is not equal to criminality or an inability to make moral distinctions. The legal ramifications of the judge's decision would be enormous. Because of the nature of the defense, the decision would have far-reaching legal consequences that would extend way beyond the walls of the courtroom or the defendant's individual case. However, John's police interview made it clear that his actions didn't fall within these parameters. As he stated repeatedly, he carried out the van attack on purpose and knew exactly what he was doing was wrong. Three years after the attack, on March 3, 2021, Ontario Supreme Court Justice Anne Malloy made her judgment on the case, rejecting the attempt by John's defense team to use autism as a defense. Instead, she said John carried out the van attack to achieve fame and notoriety, and that he was fully aware of the devastation he caused, despite not having the ability to feel empathy. He knew what he was doing was wrong. Justice Malloy also took the unusual step of not naming the accused, referring to him merely as John Doe, stating, 
She refused to contribute to the infamy he so clearly wanted. In a report, the judge wrote, Mr. Doe knew that the vast majority of people in society would find an act of mass murder to be morally wrong. He chose to commit the crimes anyway because it's what he wanted to do. This was an exercise of free will by a rational brain capable of choosing between right and wrong. Justice Malloy found John guilty on all 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder, and on June 13, 2022, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. It's impossible to determine how much of what John told police was true. One thing we do know, however, is that no evidence was ever found that could link John to any online incel group. No evidence that he ever posted comments or interacted with Elliot Roger, as he claimed. When Dr. Bradford asked John about telling police he was enraged by being rejected by women, he denied it and said he was only disappointed and made that part up about being enraged. He admitted being obsessed by some of the incel websites, but implied he wasn't a follower. So if an incel rebellion wasn't the motivating factor behind the attack, what was? Could it have been a fear of failure? Before the attack, John had one more week before he was supposed to start his first day at a new job, a job he was terrified he'd fail miserably at. Had that been the trigger? Either way, John Doe's actions were based on a severely flawed way of thinking. And perhaps if he'd gotten the help he needed, things might have been different. Years after the horrific and senseless van attack, the lives of the survivors are still marked by John's callous rage and violence, left to pick up the pieces of their lives, dealing with unimaginable pain and great financial loss. Zora was left with every bone in her face broken requiring several hours of reconstructive surgery. Today, she has 10 metal plates in her face that will stay there forever. Fortunately, the medical staff at Sunnybrook Hospital did such an expert job on Zora's reconstruction. When she looks in the mirror, she can barely see any difference. However, what others can't see will always serve as a reminder to her of the most traumatic day of her life. After the attack, Sora's friends and family had been so worried about her vulnerable state, they hesitated telling her that her best friend Sohi didn't make it. In the end, they decided it was best to tell her the truth. Now, years later, Sora still speaks of her friend in the present tense, finding it difficult to accept that she'd never see her best friend again, her disbelief, a constant companion as well as the panic attacks. She says she tries not to think about the person who caused all this pain because there's nothing she can do and it would only be an endless negative loop to think about him. Sora hopes that one day she can go back to being how she was before and when she does, she says she wants to try her best to live her life for both herself and the dear friend she lost. Catherine Riddell is now in her 70s and finally learning to walk with the help of a walker. 
After being struck by John, Kathy was left with brain trauma, a fractured pelvis, ribs, hip, sacrum, and spine, undergoing two years of therapy to recover. She told Global News, there were times she'd wished John had done a better job of it and just ended it for her, because then she wouldn't have had to go through everything, and everybody would have done their mourning and moved on with their life. She's grateful now. It didn't happen that way. In an impact statement read before the court, Kathy's niece spoke for her, and perhaps for all the victims who endured John's callous rage and violence. A total stranger out for a walk on a beautiful day. How dare you? Who gave you the right to randomly take lives or seriously injure others just because your life wasn't working out for you the way you wanted? Following the horrific van attack, Mayor John Tory of the City of Toronto partnered with Toronto Foundation to establish the hashtag Toronto Strong Fund. Since then, $3.5 million has been distributed to the victims and families of the Young Street van attack. Each of the 26 families affected by the tragedy were given $10,000 to help pay for initial expenses, while some money was donated for funeral expenses and the rest was to support the injured. However, nearly 25% of the recipients actually donated the money back. The administrator of the fund, Barbara Hall, told Global News that as she spoke to the victims and their families, many of them began asking if they could give the money back to someone who needed it more. She continued by saying, these victims, many of whom had life-altering injuries, and families who just lost loved ones were giving back, even in a time of great hardship. Here were people who had been injured and would for the rest of their lives experience this in a way, showing solidarity and love for others who had been seriously impacted. In a world where horrible, unexpected tragedies happen at the hands of human beings every day, it's incredible acts of love and sacrifices like this that give us hope in humanity, beacons of hope shining a light into the darkness. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast Strictly Stalking. Hey guys, I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking, brought to you from Podcast One. Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words. Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know? We're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked. So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. 
If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.